So please listen carefully, James 5, verses 13 through 20. This is the word of God. Is anyone among you suffering? Let him pray. Is anyone cheerful? Let him sing praise. Is anyone among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick And the Lord will raise him up. And if he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. Elijah was a man with a nature like ours. And he prayed fervently that it might not rain. And for three years and six months, it did not rain on the earth. Then he prayed again, and heaven gave rain, and earth bore its fruit. My brothers, if anyone among you wanders from the truth and someone brings him back, let him know that whoever brings back a sinner from his wandering will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, this is your word. We do need it. We need to be reminded of where wisdom comes from and why we need it. We need to know the sufficiency of your word for all the trials of our lives. Thank you that James is a letter that shows unwise people how to be wise, how to walk, how to live, how to pray in wisdom. Thank you that James points us to the one who is in himself the wisdom from God. We need the wisdom he offers. Help us to understand your word and to develop the faith in Christ that James will speak into our hearts. And so we pray. Speak through your word this morning, and by the power of the Holy Spirit, help us see Jesus. In his name we pray, amen. Amen. A number of years ago, a woman in the church came to visit me at the church office one day, unannounced, and she was with her husband. She seemed really nervous. Uh, And as these were good friends, I wasn't really sure what was going on. But after sort of the requisite small talk... uh, She told me that she wanted the full session, all of the elders, to come to her house and pray for her. She had a number of serious health problems, but after a long flight to the West Coast and back about three months earlier, she had developed severe vertigo and dizziness. And walking had gotten so bad, it was hard for her to leave the house. Some days she couldn't get from the bedroom to the kitchen. It was pretty obvious it had taken great effort for her to come to the church office. And so after listening to her for a while, I agreed that we would come to her house on a Tuesday night and pray for her, and that we would also anoint her with oil, and that we would pray for both general and specific healing, and we would pray for both physical and spiritual healing. And I asked both her and her husband to read the go-to passage in the Bible on praying for healing. James 5, verses 13 through 20, our text for today. And they agreed to do this, and so I scheduled the meeting. Well, the day came, and we went to their home. And after reading this passage from James 5, explaining it briefly, I asked if they were ready for us to pray. And she said, no. I wasn't expecting that. But then she said, this passage mentions confessing your sins. And she wanted to do that. And so she did. 
Now, this was a godly woman, and you would be hard-pressed to come up with much of a sin list for her. But she had no problem at all coming up with her own list. And she read it to us. And I really wanted to interrupt her and say, you know, I don't think you're quite that bad. I mean, have you looked around and seen the rest of us? But it seemed wiser at the time to keep my mouth shut. So I did. Well, after she finished, we read some more scripture about the assurance of forgiveness, most from what was our responsive reading at the beginning of the service. And then I anointed her head with oil. We laid hands on her and we prayed. And we probably prayed for a good hour. Nothing dramatic happened. No obvious miracles, no immediate changes. And at some point, we finished and we went home. Three months later, her husband asked me if he could share personal testimony, if they could share personal testimony at church that coming Sunday. And he wanted to update the congregation on his wife's health. I said, sure. thought that would be great. And so that Sunday, they got up and they put up a bar graph on the screen. We have a... Uh, slide. It looked like that. It wasn't exactly uh, like that. But there showed uh, six months, and it had a bar for each week, a pretty obvious V shape to it like uh, this one has. And the bars went down for three months and up for three months. And so uh, he explained the graph that their doctor had asked her to keep track of her pain uh, on a one to five scale. And so the date at the beginning of the graph was when the doctor asked her to do that. And at the end of the graph was the previous week before they spoke. And then they drew our attention to the very bottom of the graph. And these all had dates uh, there. And at the very bottom of the graph, that's when symptoms were the worst, couldn't walk, couldn't get around the house. And at that point, Margaret Rambish said, on this date, the elders came to my house, anointed my head with oil, and prayed for me. And then they sat down. And the whole church was pretty much like you are right now. Everybody just sat there stunned. And for the next year, we got a lot of requests to pray for people, almost monthly. True story. Butch and Margaret now live in South Carolina. So let me ask you, not counting communion Sundays, how many of you have had the elders pray for you? Either you came to one of our prayer meetings or we came to your home. How many of you have had elders pray for you? Okay, a fair number, probably more than some thought. What does that tell us? Well, one, it tells us there's a lot of faith in this church. And two, it tells us that we take this passage from James 5 seriously. And before we get too far into it, let me step back and try to see the big picture of this passage. And it's about healing here in the book of James. The topic of healing seems to arise rather abruptly. Uh, but when you step back and look at the big picture, you see it fits well. You'll recall that James promises, excuse me, promises grace 
to people who embrace gospel humility. We saw in James 4, humble yourselves before the Lord and he will exalt you. So then prayers for healing are part of the life of gospel humility. And yet James wants to do more than just oppose arrogance one more time. He tells the church to pray in every setting of life, to take every concern to our sovereign Lord, much as John just did in praying for our church. Now, a year and a half ago, in March of 2017, Ben Hine, then our intern, now he's an assistant pastor at Shady Grove Presbyterian Church, one of our sister churches, he preached on this very passage as part of our series on misunderstood verses. I encourage you to go back uh, and listen to it. It's on our website. I'm not going to cover the same ground today that he did, but he brought out something particularly important that I'd like to re-emphasize. And that's understanding that all of James is written in the context of the church and in the context of being a part of the communion of the saints. We often think this passage in this book is written to individuals, because it mentions a lot of individual things. However, when we look closely, what we see is that James prescribes church membership as the means for care to be given in the church. It's an underlying assumption for James that you will belong to the church, that you're part of the communion of the saints, and that's how you'll be cared for, and that's how you'll care for others. And so in verse 13, we find this contrast between two kinds of people. First is a suffering person, and the second is a cheerful person. The first is exhorted to pray, the second is exhorted to praise. But here's the thing. James is not saying either you pray when you suffer or you praise when things are going well. It's not an either-or situation. It's a both-and. James is expecting that those who are cheerful, excuse me, are praising God alongside of those who are praying and suffering within the context of the church. They're happening simultaneously, that we are praying and praising together. Why? Because we need each other. Think about it. What happens when you're in a season of blessing and prosperity? One of the first things to disappear from our life is prayer. It's a common pattern. The better our circumstances, the more our tendency to forget our dependence on God. We praise him for the blessings, but we don't pray and ask for his providence and blessings to continue. What about during seasons of suffering and hardship? It's easy for us to begin with a feeling of dependence on God, but soon despair overshadows our hearts, praise disappears from our lips, our hearts start to get hard, bitterness overtakes us. We forget there's real hope for us in the midst of sorrow, that God does love his children, and he really does work all things together for good. So you see, those are sort of the extremes we fall into if we're not part of the body of Christ, the church, the communion of the saints. And James has this underlying expectation, if you're going to live a faithful Christian life, it's going to happen in the context of a church with a commitment to other believers. 
Cheerful person needs to be reminded to pray, depend on God for everything, and the suffering person needs to be reminded to have hope and joy and sing, even when it seems impossible to do so. And that's best done in the context of the church. So let's turn to this morning's passage, James 5, verses 13 and 20, and see what it says. And we'll start with verse 13 by looking at the individual at prayer. The individual at prayer. Very quick, verse 13 says, Is anyone among you suffering? Let him pray. Is anyone cheerful? Let him sing praise. Pretty straightforward. Believers pray. If we face illness or loss, we pray. So we don't grow bitter and rebel against God. If we meet with success, we praise God lest we give ourselves credit. Now, James' main concern is prayer in times of trouble. But notice his interest in prayer during the good times. If anyone is happy, he says, let him sing praise. Sing, James says. We should learn the Psalms, hymns, spiritual songs, songs that speak to our heart and express its joys and yearnings. I don't know who said this first, but I heard it from my mom. He who sings prays twice. And we're to use music to rejoice in God's blessings. Praise God for his salvation, for his gifts, for his providence. And by stating it in the present tense, James implies this is just part of an element of daily life. We should be people who sing. It doesn't say anything about singing well. It just says sing. So James' message is is fairly clear. In every circumstance, every situation of life, pray. The whole of Christian life is to be lived in communion with God, the good and the bad, lived in communion with God, the joy and the heartbreak, lived in communion with God, good times, bad times, all to be manifested by prayer. Listen to what he says. Is anyone among you suffering? What's the response? Let him pray. Is anyone cheerful? Things are going well. God has blessed you. What's the response? Let him sing praise. James' response to suffering is not simply to say, be patient, hang in there. But to entrust yourself to the care of the almighty God. There's only one way to do that. And that's by praying. His point then is prayer is always appropriate. It is always appropriate to pray. So pray when you're suffering, pray when you're rejoicing, sing when you're cheerful. That's what he says. Times of trouble, times of rejoicing, prayer and praise, acknowledge that God is sufficient to help us. Trusting him and acknowledging him as the giver of every good gift, no matter what's happening in your life, we should pray and praise God. James is calling on us in suffering to pray and in cheerful joy to praise. Why does he do this? Because the Christian life is to be consecrated by prayer so that every pleasure is hallowed and every pain is sanctified. We're to live the Christian life so that every pleasure is made holy by acknowledging that it comes from the hand of our loving Father. Lord, I don't deserve these kids that you've given me, and so I praise you. 
I don't deserve this spouse that you've given me, and so I praise you. I don't deserve this job that you've given me, and so I praise you. I don't deserve this financial windfall that I've received, even if others are going through tough economic times, and so I praise you. I don't deserve the friends you've given me, and so I praise you. And the examples could go on and on. Every season of rejoicing is to be hallowed with praise. But James doesn't just say in the seasons of rejoicing. He also says that's the case in times of suffering, that we're to pray in those seasons as well. Lord, I never thought I'd bury my child, and so I'm turning you to you in prayer for grace and strength. Lord, I never thought I'd be among the jobless, but here I am. And so I'm turning to you in prayer for grace and strength. Lord, I never knew I'd be in a miserable marriage, but here I am. And so I'm turning to you in prayer for grace and strength. Lord, I had no idea I'd be coming to you with a broken heart over children who've turned away from the faith and are living apart from your love. But here I am, and so I'm turning to you in prayer for grace and strength. Lord, I never knew I'd be in a broken home, but here I am, and I'm turning to you in prayer for grace and strength. James says that in every circumstances of life, we have to go to the Lord in prayer. I think John Calvin said it beautifully. He's not noted for actually saying beautiful things, but I love this. There is no time in which God does not invite us to himself. There is no time in which God does not invite us to himself. I think that's what James is saying. Even in the extremes, great cheerfulness, unbearable sorrow, the Lord is inviting us to himself. We're to go to him in prayer. He wants us to talk to him at all times. In trouble, he's our comforter. In joy, he's the giver of all good things. We go to him in prayer. We hallow every pleasure, and we sanctify every pain. But there is a special case that needs special treatment, and that's what James addresses next. And he's going to show us the elders at prayer. It sort of gets back to the, uh, my opening story. <clears throat> Starting at verse 14, the elders of prayer. He says, is anyone among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick and the Lord will raise him up. And if he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. Look at those first two verses, 14 and 15. We're going to spend most of the rest of our time here this morning. So in this passage, we see James' instruction that in times of dire need, we need to show our dependence first upon God, but second on the communion of the saints. What a better way to do that than to call upon the elders as the leaders, the shepherds, the pastors of the communion of the saints as representatives of the covenant community to come and call down God's help in times of need. James is reminding us the Christian life is a life of community. It's not just about the individual. It's about life in a community of believers, all of whom are helping one another assisting one another, encouraging one another to love and good deeds, who are praying with and for one another, 
who are looking to live together as the heirs of the grace of life. So the Christian life is one of community. And so it makes sense. There are certain times when you don't simply need another Christian to pray uh, with you. You need the communion of the saints to be represented, to be praying with and for you. James has made it clear the Christian life is one which is dependent upon the Lord. It's dependent on the work of the Holy Spirit, but it's also dependent on the communion of the saints. What a better way to demonstrate that reliance than by calling the elders together to pray for you in serious circumstances. After all, you want someone who will pray over you who's spiritually wise, mature, knowledgeable in the scriptures, familiar with God's ways. Key factors in knowing how to pray rightly in these kinds of circumstances. They're shepherds. These, these are shepherds. You have great elders. They're great shepherds. And they're well-versed in prayer and able to handle delicate information, difficult situations, all of which are very common in moments like this. So we see James is assuming the church believes in the ministry of healing prayer. He doesn't just say, oh, I heard some of you were sick. I have a great idea. Why don't the elders? He doesn't say that. He just says, call for the elders of the church. He expects this. It's assumed. It's expected that Christians deal with sick church members through prayer. He's assuming there's a ministry of prayer and that prayer has an effect on sick people. What he says to do in this ministry of prayer is three things. First, there has to be anointing with oil. Second, there has to be prayer over the person. It's called a prayer of faith. And third, there needs to be a confession of sin on the part of the person who's sick. So what does all that mean? What are we able to say? Well, first, the prayer of faith. What does that mean? If any of you have been to other places, you may have heard this interpreted differently. And what I'm about to say may vary some of what you've heard, depending on your church background. This phrase, prayer of faith, is a very unusual word for prayer. And some think it means that it's a prayer of incredible certainty. That some people will tell you a prayer of faith means no doubts. I think that's virtually impossible. Or at least, at a minimum, it's often impossible. I think it means believing in spite of your doubts. Despite your uncertainties, you still Trust God. A great example of the prayer of faith, I think, is found in Mark chapter 9. In fact, this is my favorite prayer in the whole Bible. It says, it's talking about Jesus, someone from the crowd answered him, Teacher, I brought my son to you, for he has a spirit that makes him mute. And when it seizes him, it throws him down, and he foams and grinds his teeth and becomes rigid. So I asked your disciples to cast it out, and they were not able and he answered them, O faithless generation, how long am I to be with you? How long am I to bear with you? Bring him to me. They brought the boy to him, and when the spirit saw him, immediately it convulsed the boy, and he fell on the ground and rolled about, foaming at the mouth. And Jesus asked his father, How long has this been happening to him? And he said, From childhood. He has cast him into fire and into water to destroy him. But if you can do anything, have compassion on us and help us. And Jesus said to him, if you can, all things are possible for one who believes. Immediately the father of the child cried out and said, I believe. 
help my unbelief. That's my favorite prayer. The Father says, I believe. Help my unbelief. It's sort of a way of saying, you know, I do and I don't. I have faith, I guess, but I don't know if I have enough faith. I don't know if I have the right faith. I wish I had more faith. Please help me. And Jesus says, that's faith. So what is the prayer of faith? It's very simply, the prayer of faith is a very specific request. We don't always pray like that. One commentator I read said, uh, often we're confronted with a prayer of rest. I, I hadn't heard that before. But he says, that's where you go into a situation and say, Lord, I don't even know what I should be asking for. I just ask that you would take care of it and you do what's best. You just sort of lift the whole thing up to God in prayer and trust him to figure it out. But here, James is calling for something specific, a prayer of faith, which is a direct request. The elders are supposed to get together and say, Lord, this is what we ask for. We're asking for this specifically. We're asking for this directly. Of course, we have uncertainties, but we're bringing it all to you. That's a prayer of faith. When the man said, I believe, help my unbelief, Jesus said, that's belief. Come with your doubts, but come. Be dependent on me. Ask me very directly. Ask me very specifically. So that's the first thing, the prayer of faith. Second, anointing with oil. Here we see it's not only the duty of the elders to pray, but James gives them the role of anointing the sick person with oil in the name of the Lord. It's very interesting because oil... Uh, in biblical times, was often used for medical purposes, particularly to protect and condition the skin. But James is not telling the elders to become doctors. There's another much more common uh, usage for oil in the Bible. It's used in a symbolic way of setting a person apart for God. Kings were anointed, priests were anointed, often prophets were anointed to communicate that this person is being set apart for God, for God's purposes. And therefore, when the elders pray over and anoint a sick person, we're saying we're setting this person apart for special attention from God while we pray. Accompanied by a time of confession, the anointing with oil symbolically communicates that this is a moment where the one who is sick is being consecrated to the Lord renewing their commitment to place their trust in him. Essentially, they're saying, God, I belong to you. My life is yours. My body is yours. And we are praying for you to strengthen and heal me. James has both physical and spiritual healing in mind. We should seek more than a physical cure for more than a physical problem. Physical healing is his main concern, but we have to look past that. Look at verse 15. And the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick, and the Lord will raise him up. If he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. This is probably the most controversial verse in the whole book. We have to be careful. James is not promising universal healing in this life. The word save can mean a physical or a spiritual healing, and the phrase the Lord will raise him up has two meanings. The Lord can raise the sick from their beds. We saw Jesus do that in Matthew 9. However, in the New Testament, the Lord will raise them up usually refers to the resurrection on the last day, as we saw this spring at the end of 1 Corinthians. 
The Lord raises up all the sick who believe in him, some in this life and some for eternal life. The Lord will heal all his people sooner or later. Some rise from sickness in this life after prayer by the elders. Others rise only uh, on the last day when the Lord raises the dead. And the last clause says, if he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. And that reminds us that healing has a spiritual dimension. We should confess our sins. Sin can lead to illness. That may sound antiquated, may even be offensive. But scripture often draws a connection between sin and sickness. In Jesus' day, people over-spiritualized illness. They assumed that all tragedy, all disease were direct consequences of sin. Today, particularly in the West, we despiritualize illness. We believe there's microbes and defective genes, and that's the cause of all illness. We deny a link between sin and illness, except in the most obvious cases like cirrhosis of the liver or sexually transmitted diseases. In fact, we need to re-spiritualize illness. Scripture often links sin and illness. Jesus said, your sins are forgiven, and then healed a paralytic, Luke 5. He healed a crippled man by the pool of Siloam in Jerusalem and said, stop sinning. <clears throat> or something worse could happen. Excuse me. Nevertheless, <coughs> other passages deny that all illness is the result of sin. Whatever Job's friends think, both Job and the Lord denied that his suffering was a result of sin. Ecclesiastes, we just finished that in Sunday school today, right? Often undercuts this connection and says, that's life. There's chaos, there's injustice, it happens. Once Jesus... Uh, the disciples asked him about a man born blind. You can look it up in John 9. Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? <coughs> I don't know what's wrong. I had oral surgery this week and so things aren't working correctly. But Jesus answered them and said, it was not that this man sinned or his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. So James is saying, you have to consider the possibility that a sick person has sinned. If he has sinned, he can be forgiven. But sin may or may not be the cause of an illness. But either way, the illness gives us the opportunity for self-examination. When sickness lays us up, we should use the time to scan our lives. If sin comes to mind, confess it, repent of it, endeavor to change. Which brings us to the next point, which is confession of sin on the part of the person who's sick. Verse 16. Therefore, confess your sins to one another. Keep that phrase in mind and pray for one another that you may be healed. Notice this does not say 
Confess your sins to God before one another. It says confess your sins to one another. It's a key difference. The word to confess means to ratify or affirm. So we have a confession of faith. We say we ratify, we affirm what this says. It means to go to somebody and agree with them. So when it says confess your sins, it means you're going to somebody who says you've sinned, you haven't agreed, and then you do. To confess your sin means to go to somebody and say, you were in the right. I was in the wrong. You were right. I did sin. I did hurt you. You were right. Pray for me. Please forgive me. That's what it means to confess to one another. And finally, James expects that these prayers will be effective. It says, verse 16, the prayer of a righteous person has great power as it's working. Elders are responsible to set an example of righteousness. James expects everybody to pray. It's not just elders that get to pray. Everyone who's righteous by faith prays. And then I don't even like this next part. Because he uses the prophet Elijah to illustrate the effective prayer of a righteous man. How many of us are as righteous as Elijah? Don't raise your hand. Yeah, I was like, you know, Elijah was like a pretty cool guy. He did this amazing stuff. During the reign of the wicked king Ahab, Elijah prayed at God's direction. It says, verse 17, Elijah was a man with a nature like ours, and he prayed fervently that it might not rain, and for three years and six months it did not rain on the earth. Then he prayed again, and heaven gave rain, and the earth bore its fruit. Haven't done that lately. Elijah illustrates effective prayer in some important ways, and it's important we don't try to take the entire Elijah story. Because, yes, Elijah was a righteous man, a faithful man, a great prophet, but he wasn't perfect. There were times when he indulged his fears. He ran away from God. He went into great despair and depression, asked God to take his life, 1 Kings 19. Still, God heard his prayers, whether for drought or for rain. And notice that James doesn't call Elijah a prophet, even though we know that he was. He doesn't emphasize his special relationship with God. He says he was a man with a nature like ours. He served from a position of weakness. He felt the world's powers arrayed against him. He's prone to despair. He's not worthy. He's simply a righteous man who prayed for individuals and for his society. And whenever we read about Elijah, it should remind us of Christ, the one who is greater than Elijah. Because that takes us to the heart of the gospel. We read about Elijah as an example of prayer because it sort of raises the question of verse 16, who, after all, is the righteous man? And that focuses our attention on Jesus as the one greater than Elijah is ultimately the only perfectly righteous person who ever lived. All the prophets who Elijah stands for were fervent prayer warriors, and all of them point us forward to Jesus, who Romans 8 says is the one who died, more than that, who was raised, 
who is at the right hand of the Father, who indeed is interceding for us. There's only one who's perfectly righteous. And the scriptures say he is praying for us. He is praying for you. Jesus sits at the right hand of the Father, and he is praying for you. That's remarkable. And then we get to verse 19 and 20, and these last verses seem to initiate a new topic, but on closer inspection, I think they develop previous themes. First, if the family of God prays together when physical illness uh, wounds one of us, we should certainly work together if spiritual troubles wound one of us. So he says, verse 19, this is the community of care. The community of care. Verse 19, my brothers, if anyone among you wanders from the truth and someone brings him back, let him know that whoever brings back a sinner from his wandering will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. It's why when you see any person in the church drifting away from the faith, it's very possible that's a person who they're going to be hurt very badly that God will bring back. They will come back. The great English preacher Charles Haddon Spurgeon once said, a real Christian is like a person who's on a boat on the way to heaven. And a real Christian can't fall off the boat. But you can fall on the boat, break all your bones, and spend the whole trip in the infirmary. <laughs> Don't let that happen. He says, bring back the wandering soul. These final themes of James, I think, unite the book. To pursue a sinner in order to win him to Christ is a proper response to a trial, James 1. It's a form of kindness to a brother, James 2. It's the proper use of our speech, James 3. And it leads people to humble themselves before the Lord, James 4. And it's how we demonstrate patience and prayer for one another, James 5. James summons us to be doers of the word. One more time, James reminds us that sin leads to death and the gospel, the word of truth, saves the soul. And it's all to be done in the context of the communion of the saints. Now, today, I've used the word community a few times but it's become something of a popular evangelical buzzword, much like the modern demand to be missional. It sounds good as long as we can define it any way we want. A much older term, much more accurate term, is the communion of the saints. It's a term that we not only affirm in the creed, but it's a term that has deep historical roots in the church. But what does it mean for us? What does it look like? What does it feel like? I think one of the reasons the communion of the saints has persevered through time is not just because of its profound theological meaning, but has profound personal effects. One of my convictions after having preached through 1 Corinthians over this past school year and then this summer uh, in James is the exercise of community has to be both pastoral and personal. Before we can solve the big problems of reconciliation, we have to show mercy. We're often wise to take on the disruption of 
damaged relationships by the exercise of kindness, one-on-one and face-to-face. So it was recently brought home to me in a very powerful way. As many of you know, in May, I was privileged to hear the words, it's not cancer, after I had surgery on my face. It's hard to describe how merciful those words sound. I have prepared myself for the worst, for the inevitable facing of the oncologist, for the stoic stubbornness expected, for the endurance run that is cancer. But then came the unexpected good news, and it left me stunned. And after taking stock of my situation, I was struck by how many people came around me. My wife and family have always been there for me, and they were there for me again. But this time, I was also surrounded by the communion of the saints. The other pastors were waiting for me at the hospital when I showed up. Lori came to sit with Joanne during my surgery. Mike brought me a recliner to sleep in at night. Our community group signed up to bring meals each night of my recovery. I had shared my health issues and asked for prayer from many other people, friends, family, this church, a company of pastors I belong to, Potomac Presbytery, various groups and networks within the PCA, several Facebook groups I'm a part of. And I was prayed for. Oh, how I was prayed for. I was prayed for by Twin Lakes Fellowship. I was prayed for by the Administrative Committee of the PCA. I was prayed for personally by the coordinator of uh, Discipleship Ministry, Stephen Estock, and the coordinator of Mission of North America, Paul Hahn. I was prayed for by an RTS class of my students. I was prayed for by the Presbytery. I was prayed for by this church and several other churches. I heard from at least four other churches that we prayed for you in our worship service today. One of the founding fathers of the PCA called and prayed for me over the phone. He's about 90. I was prayed for by hundreds of other pastors thanks to Facebook, a positive use among its many negatives. Um, I was prayed for by friends from every season of my life including some who profess other faiths and other perspectives. At one point, I sat down. I tried to add it all up. And using even conservative guesstimates, I came up with approximately 800 people who prayed for me. That's an amazing number. When I saw that total, I almost broke down in tears. It was terribly humbling and wonderfully comforting. And it reminded me how dependent I was on others, how much I needed them. It was truly the communion of the saints in action. It was very pastoral, and it was very personal. It's often part of our calling to embrace scenarios where we find ourselves over our head and out of our depth. Those are scenarios where we know that we cannot hope to make it without God's help. And after 27 years of full-time pastoral ministry, I know sometimes you hear the words, it's broken, it's cancer, he's gone, we lost. The Puritans called those circumstances hard providences. It's often the case of God's sovereign will that unforeseen difficulties arise. And they throw us back on the Lord for support. At some point, every one of us will find ourselves trapped, 
submerged, overwhelmed, and lost. And when that happens, it will take the church to gather around you, pray for you, pull you up, and bring you to safety. And they'll do it with food, and they'll do it with tears. And sometimes, if you ask, the elders will come, anoint your head with oil, and pray for you. And they will do it because, because Christ has already done it for them. Think about that. You need to pray. Take a moment to do that, and then I'll close. pray together. Our Lord and our God, thank you that you have spoken to us once again by your Son. As always, open our eyes that we might see our sin and then see our Savior. Thank you for making us people who, as we grow more and more like your Son, as our hearts turn more and more to you, we find more and more that our prayers are becoming powerful and effective, changing our lives and changing the lives of the people around us. We thank you the reason we can know you, that you will always hear us, that you will always give us what we ask for. You give us something better than what we ask for as we stand in the righteous one whose prayers for us are absolutely powerful and totally effective. So, Father, give us the wisdom that comes from above. Thank you that as we finish the book of James, that you've told us so many things in your word that if we apply them will help us to receive your wisdom, to receive suffering in a way that will make us mature, lacking nothing. Lord, I pray that everyone here will make greater use of that righteous intercessor, the righteous high priest, the righteous advocate, our Lord and Savior, Jesus. I pray we might pray more boldly, that we might uh, make every opportunity, both in good times and bad times, and especially in sick times, to come closer and experience the spiritual and physical healing that can come to us through prayer. Forgive us and work in us as we reflect on all of these lessons of James. Teach us how to ask for the wisdom that comes from above and to receive it so that we will be like your son, our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, who lives and reigns with you and the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen. I hope you found James worthwhile. It's an interesting book. It's a practical book. It's a book meant to be put to work in your life. We're going to move on next week to a new book, which is very, very different. We'll be delving into the life of the prophet Jeremiah. So I encourage you to Find it and start reading it. It's a big book. So we haven't taken on a big book for a while, but it's a big one. Receive the Lord's blessing. To this end, we always pray for you, that our God may make you worthy of his calling and may fulfill every resolve for good and every work of faith by his power so that the name of our Lord Jesus may be glorified in you and you in him 
according to the grace of our God and the Lord Jesus Christ. God bless you. We'll see you next week.